Hey, uh, we've been preaching through the Gospel of John, and we're in chapter 12 this week, and a bunch of things are like uh, kind of coming together. And so if you get confused, I encourage you to, which, which you will, I encourage you to go back and look at the sermons that have gone before, but right now, let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you would bring pieces together and that you would help us to see you. Lord God, we do pray that you would help us to preach. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1960, the year that my wife was born, so it's not that long ago, okay, that's what I'm saying. In 1960, a federal judge ordered that one little black girl should attend the William Frank Elementary School in New Orleans, Louisiana. It so infuriated the people in the school district that the parents kept their children out of school such that little Ruby Bridges, six years old, had to attend school alone. And yet every day she was greeted by a crowd, an angry mob who greeted her as she went to school and greeted her as she went home. And there's a picture of some of them. See the cross in, in the background? A mob is comprised of people that think they choose, but they really don't choose because they've abdicated their choice to the crowd. And so each would see Ruby, but, but they couldn't really see Ruby. Every day, hundreds chanted and screamed at, at Ruby in the morning and in the afternoon, we'll kill you, nigger. They threatened to poison her to death. One woman would hold up a coffin with a little black baby doll in it. The police and local authorities refused to protect Ruby. And so the federal judge ordered uh, federal marshals to escort her to school and to escort her home every day. Imagine how she felt. Imagine how that would affect her. The federal judge was so concerned that he assigned the prestigious Harvard uh, psychiatrist, psychologist, Dr. Robert Coles, to counsel with Ruby every day. I got to hear Dr. Coles speak several years ago. He told of how Ruby just mystified him because she seemed so happy so well-adjusted, so undisturbed by all the things going on around her. Every day, every afternoon, she'd just walk right on by the crowd without saying a word. Dr. Cole's reason that she must be repressing some deep bitterness, shame, rage. One day, uh, Miss Henry, Ruby's teacher, lone teacher in the school, um, she observed something out of her window that morning and then later that day she told Dr. Coles about it. She said, I was watching Ruby come to school like normal with the federal marshals. Uh, she was uh, walking along like usual and then all of a sudden she just stopped and she turned toward the crowd and she began to talk. I could see her lips moving. She just stood there and talked until all at once she was finished. She stopped and then she walked on into the school. And so Dr. Coles and uh, Miss Henry, they uh, met with Ruby after class that day. Dr. Coles sat her down and he said to Ruby, Ruby, um, what did you say to those people in 
the crowd today. And Ruby, uh, she, she looked at him kind of confused and she said, well, I didn't say anything to them. And Dr. Cole said, well, Ruby, uh, Miss Henry says that she saw you from the window. She saw you walking along. She saw you stop and she saw your, your, lips, your, your lips moving. You were talking to them. And Ruby looked up at Dr. Cole and said, but I wasn't talking to them. I was praying. Every morning and every afternoon, you see, um, I, say, I say a prayer. And this morning, well, I forgot to say my prayer until all at once I was in front of the crowd. And so I stopped there and I, I turned and I said my, I said my, my prayer. Um, and then I came inside. I, I said my prayer because I remembered because, you see, I, I pray for them. And Dr. Coles looked down at Ruby and he said, Ruby, you pray for them? She had this kind of confused look on her face, and she said, well, yeah. And he said, you pray for the people in that crowd, the people that say such mean and terrible things about you. Why would you pray for them? And she looked up at him, and she said, well, don't you think they need praying for Don't you think they need praying? Maybe they need judgment day. I mean, the way I figure it, people like that have either A, made such bad choices that need to be held accountable, they need to be locked away and punished, or B, they didn't really make those choices, in which case they're just bad, made bad, and they just need to be annihilated. I mean, how do you change someone like that? About that same time, that little Ruby was going to school, a woman named Mary was recovering in a burn unit. She had second and third degree burns all over her face, all over her arms from a grease fire. She'd undergone a series of skin grafts that had kept her in her hospital bed in, in bandages just for weeks. But in the course of that time, she had met another patient who simply introduced himself as Sarge. He had screen grafts over most of his body. His burns had even been worse than hers. And yet, over and over again, this man would show up at her bedside offering a cup of coffee, some juice, asking if he could help in any way. She discovered that he was doing this for all the patients in the burn unit. His kindness was infectious. And so without seeing him, she, she couldn't see him. Her face had been covered in bandages for, for weeks. Without seeing him, she could see that he was a very good and very gracious man. One evening he came to the bedside and shared some great news. Doctor said that just a couple more surgeries and I can go home. And then he told about how wonderful his children were. He told Mary about how proud he was of his wife. She had just graduated from college, and so Mary said, well, Sarge, what college did she graduate from? And when Sarge told her, she was shocked. Why, Sarge, that's a black college, she exclaimed. Your wife isn't a Negro, is she? Sarge was quiet for some time. And then he said, uh, 
Well, yes, ma'am. What color do you think I am? Wow. That must have felt like Judgment Day to Mary. It must have felt like a bucket of hot coals had all of a sudden been dumped on her head. All that much more hot because of all of Sarge's kindness over those long weeks. It must have like annihilated Mary's mental map. It must have burned her, burned her bad judgments, burned up all her bad judgments with some amazing new judgment that would never allow her to be the same again. Think about it. The fire literally blinded Mary to the color of Sarge's skin. And Mary needed to be blinded in order to see the light. In order to see the good and gracious man that was standing right in front of her. John 12, verse 31 through Uh, 37, to the Palm Sunday mob, the crowd that John refers to as the Jews, Jesus exclaims the following, now is the judgment. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And so the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man will be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, trust in the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. And then John writes, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not trust him. They still did not believe in him. Imagine how how, how John felt when he was writing this. Imagine how the Apostle Paul felt. I bet it was the same way. I mean, they both expressed this profound disappointment and shock over the fact that so many of the Jews, their kinsmen by race, had rejected the Messiah. You know, the Apostle Paul was repeatedly rejected by synagogues of the Jews. So in Ephesus, rejected by the synagogue, he ended up teaching in the hall of Tyrannus for something like two years. Scholars think that John lived in that Uh, very same town. He lived into old age in Ephesus, and there it was that he wrote this gospel. But but imagine how how he felt. He was probably about 90 years old. For half a century, his kinsmen, the Jews, had largely rejected him. Some, Some believed, but most had cooperated with Romans in having Jesus executed. And all the disciples, John's friends, and the Apostle Paul, all tortured and executed while John himself had been exiled to the island of Patmos even for a time. Some argue that John was, quote, anti-Semitic because he refers to the Jews as rejecting Christ. And yet John was a Jew. The disciples were Jews. Paul was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. Like Paul wrote, John had... uh, 
unceasing anguish for his kinsmen by race. And yet, you see, John no longer believed in race as a defining category, for Christ had broken down the dividing wall of hostility. It was the Jews, it was the religious people that believed in the dividing wall. And so they rejected John. And they rejected their own Messiah. And you see, John just found it utterly shocking. Though he had done so many signs, though Jesus had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The strong arm of the Lord is Jesus Christ and him crucified. He's the power of love, the judgment of love, and the glory of love. John's quoting Isaiah 53 here. It goes on like this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our iniquities. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53 reads like a biography of Jesus. And yet it was written hundreds of years before Jesus was born. And uh, it's even in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So we even have manuscripts of Isaiah that we know are from before Jesus was born. And the Jews, the Jews, they knew all of this. And so if anyone should have chosen to believe, it should have been them. If anyone had the right to be a bitter, resentful old man, well, it was John. You know, when people just choose to be evil, it makes me angry, resentful, bitter. And if I think that people are just evil, just monsters by nature, I just think they should be annihilated. Why are people evil? Does it make you angry? Does it make you bitter? But this is the wild thing. You see, John wasn't bitter. As a young man, he'd been nicknamed the Son of Thunder, but now he's known as the Apostle of Love. The Apostle of Love. Well, he quotes Isaiah 53, noting that their unbelief was foretold, and then he writes this. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And boy, I'll tell, testify to that reality in people. I mean, a few years ago, I was kicked out of my synagogue. All sorts of folks agreed with me in private. And then in public, they remained silent as I was tried and kicked out of the synagogue. I, I really I felt so denied and so betrayed. And so for three years, I really have been tempted to shame and resentment, bitterness. But John wasn't bitter. He wasn't bitter. If anybody had a right to be bitter, it was old John, but he wasn't bitter. In fact, he writes, like all that evil really wasn't even their choice. Verse 39, you read it. Therefore, they could not believe. 
Then John quotes Isaiah chapter 6, perhaps the most quoted Old Testament chapter in all the New Testament. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees the Lord on his throne. It's like that song we sing about. He sees the Lord upon his throne and his glory fills the temple and it fills the whole earth. Now that's wild because under the earth, in the earth is hell, Sheol, Hades, uh, the darkness, but his glory fills the whole earth. So much glory that it just freaks Isaiah out. And he falls down in terror until a seraphim comes from the altar and touches a burning coals to, to his lips and his sins are atoned for and his guilt is taken away. And then the Lord speaks to him saying, preach, Isaiah. Preach. Preach so that people will not understand. Now that's a little weird too, huh? Because, I, I mean, most preachers judge their success by how many people hear and understand. But the Lord tells Isaiah to preach people, to preach people into blindness. And then the Lord tells Isaiah to preach so that, quote, they will not turn to me and be healed. Preach a word like a sword that'll keep them away from that tree of life. The Lord tells them that. Now, this gets even weirder still, because John tells us that Isaiah saw Jesus' glory. And he's already told us that no man has seen God. And so the Lord that Isaiah saw was and is Jesus. So think about that. The Lord that tells Isaiah to preach blindness is Jesus the light. And so Jesus commands the blindness that leads to his very own crucifixion. Jesus commands the blindness that leads to judgment upon the Jews. Jesus commands the blindness that leads to the destruction of Jerusalem with all that pain and all that sorrow. And check this out. It means that these people were predestined by God in Christ Jesus unto condemnation and wrath. Predestined for condemnation and wrath. The Apostle Paul makes the same argument in Romans. Check this out, Romans 9, 15. God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on human will, that's choice, or on exertion, that's works, but on God who has mercy. Ah. Romans 3, Paul writes this. What shall we say? That God is unrighteous, that God is unjust to inflict wrath on us? Make an oita. Hell no, is how my Greek teacher told me to translate that. No way, may it never be. And so this is so weird. I mean, it's like John and Paul and Jesus let those, those Jews off the hook saying they couldn't help it. They knew not what they did. They let them off the hook and yet simultaneously at the same time, it's like they damn them to hell. Burning and blindness and outer darkness where men weep and gnash their teeth. We enlightened Christians, we... American Christians, we liberated Christians, we think to ourselves, well, surely that's not right. 
Well, surely that can't be true. I mean, Jesus came to save his people, the, the Jews. Jesus came to save his people. Surely Jesus isn't about casting sons of the kingdom into outer darkness where men weep and gnash their teeth. Well, that's the weird thing. That's exactly what it says. And he says in Matthew 8, verse 12. Well, surely Jesus' delight didn't manifest in this world of darkness in order to blind religious folks like the Pharisees. Well, read John chapter 9, verse 49. That's pretty much exactly what Jesus says, and he calls it judgment. Well, surely Jesus who heals the blind didn't actually physically blind anyone, did he? Well, we actually do know of one incident where he actually did physically blind someone. A Pharisee. Acts chapter 9. His name was Saul of Tarsus, and he was on the road to Damascus, and suddenly Jesus manifested in front of him, and Saul went blind. I saw the light, I saw the light. Everything is darkness, everything is night. Now I am so confused, nothing in sight. What the heck? I saw the light. Jesus appeared and Saul went blind. It was judgment. I mean, it must have been just like uh, Sarge telling Mary, Mary, I am a Negro. I mean, it would have been just like those folks in New Orleans suddenly looking to the throne of glory and Seeing Ruby Bridges sitting on Jesus' lap as Jesus says, whatever you do unto the least of these, you do unto me. See, the chosen profession of Saul of Tarsus, the Pharisee, was persecuting Christians until he saw the light and he heard the word, and this was the word, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I'm Jesus. And he went blind. Scripture says, quote, his eyes were opened and he saw nothing. All his old judgments, all his old mental map, all his view of reality was just obliterated, destroyed, for he was blinded by the light. And now if you've been around church a little while, you know that Saul of Tarsus is the fellow that we refer to as St. Paul. He wrote most of your New Testament. It seems that he struggled with uh, his eyes for the rest of his, his, his life, learning that God's grace is sufficient. I mean, you see, conversion takes a lifetime, but I hope you understand that Paul, Saul, Saul, who became Paul, did not remain in darkness. And actually, he became light. John 12, verse 44, John continues, and Jesus cried out, he said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Now you know that John has taught us 
that Jesus is the judge who judges by not judging. He doesn't judge, and yet he is the judgment. The light is the judgment, and Jesus is the light. The word is the judgment, and Jesus is the word. Judgment is on the last day, and yet Jesus just said, now is the judgment of this world, and when I am lifted up. And if you reject my word now, it will judge you on the last day. Now or later, we each have to face judgment. Next verse. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Check this out. Translated from the Greek, verse 50 reads like this. And I know that the commandment of him is eternal life. Commandment in the Greek carries the definite article. And so it's not a commandment. It's not, well, this is like, you know, one of the commandments. It is the commandment, eternal life. And so just like we saw last time, the judgment in verse 31 must include all the judgments. In the same way, the commandment in verse 50 must include all God's commandments. For God's commandment then is is one. God's commandment is not eternal life and or eternal death. The commandment is eternal life. So all his commandments are this commandment. The commandment is eternal life. And so if you're one of those people like me, like any of us, that holds on to the crazy unbiblical idea that you on your own can simply choose to obey God's commandment, well, this verse ought to utterly obliterate that notion. You just try to give yourself life eternal. You just try. You just try to break the reality of a world that's been goddamned to death. The reality is that you cannot simply choose to live eternally, no matter what health plan you acquire, no matter how many doctors you go to. The reality is that you have already chosen death. You've already chosen the lie that you are your own creator, your own judge, your own savior, and now you're in bondage to that illusion, enslaved to evil, in other words, utterly unable to choose the good except by grace. And the commandment is eternal life. You can't fulfill it. But God does fulfill it. His commandment is his word. And his word is Jesus. And his word does not return void. For God accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will. The commandment is eternal life. In him was life, and the life is the light of men. The life is an eternal seed. And Jesus is that seed, that promised seed. You see, eternal life is Christ in you. It's faith implanted within you. We're saved by grace through faith. This faith is not of ourselves, lest none should boast, writes Paul. That faith is a gift of God. 
John 17, verse 3, eternal life is knowing God through Christ Jesus. Eternal life then is, is well, it's seeing Jesus and believing Jesus. Eternal life is the commandment, the commandment, the commandment. And it's seeing Jesus. Eternal life is the commandment. So if Jesus commands Pharisees to go blind, well, it must be so that they can see. So that ultimately they can see him. Check out Isaiah 6. This is so wild. The Lord tells Isaiah, go and say to this people, Isaiah, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And then I, Isaiah says, then I said, how long, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. See, all get burned. And though a tenth remain in it, it will get burned again. It will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Isaiah preached the word, preached the word till it blinds him and burns him right down to the stump. And what's the stump? The holy seed. The eternal seed, Jesus. And check it out, it happened. God burned Israel down to a remnant of one. One who was faithful unto death for all the world to see. And his name is Jesus. Karl Barth wrote, God burns each of us right down to faith. Faith is the promised seed taking root in me. And so with his judgment, God burns away all our judgments until we can only see his judgment, Jesus. He burns away all our judgments. I mean, all our knowledge of good and evil that, you know, we use to judge, that we seize to judge, with which we create ourselves, that is, our flesh, which becomes our own prison, with which we judge ourselves, judge others, and judge God. He burns away all our judgments until all we can see is his judgment. Jesus, hanging on the ancient tree, in the garden, body broken, blood shed, fruit, seed, life, light. See, maybe Jesus blinds Pharisees so that ultimately they can see the light. And we're all Pharisees, born into that very same lie that we are the judge. 
Maybe God sets us up for that unrighteousness so that we can see his righteousness. Let's read more of Romans 3. This is so cool. I want you to focus and get this, okay? This is, anyway. Paul writes, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, if our injustice serves to show the justice of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous, that he's unjust to inflict wrath on us? I'm speaking in a human way, he writes. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? Why all the sin, pain, sorrow, suffering in this world? How else could God judge the world? Well, that just seems crazy to us. Seems nuts to us. Because Paul talks as if God's judgment is more important than all the world, all of space and time, as if God's judgment is before all space and time, foundational to all space and time. Paul talks as if God's judgment is not a response to our bad choices in this world. But as if our bad choices in this world are necessary for the sake of revealing God's judgment. And that's exactly what Paul writes in Romans eleven thirty two. 32. Listen, God consigned all to disobedience. Why? That he may have mercy on all. He has mercy on whom he wills. And on whom does he will to have mercy? All. God's judgment is mercy. God's choice is mercy. His judgment is Jesus. So God consigns all to bad choices that he might have good choice. He might have Jesus on all, mercy on all, his judgment on all, eternal life on all. God consigns us to sin in order that we might know his mercy, his self. God consigns us to darkness so we might see the light. And and choose the light, for the light shines in the darkness. You see, the Messiah only gets crucified in the darkness of a fallen world. That's where he shines. And where he shines is where God creates his greatest miracle. Faith, hope, love a good choice in us, eternal seed in us, eternal life in us, in the image of him. He creates us here with his judgment. This is a picture, I drew it, of our world, our age, our time. See that timeline? That's, that's where we live, on that timeline. At the end of time is the judgment, which is the light, which is the word, which is God's commandment of eternal life, eternal fire, which is grace, which is Jesus, which is the end. And yet Jesus is also the beginning. And so the judgment is at the end and the judgment is at the beginning and Jesus is also the word, the word through whom everything was made and upholds and sustains everything. You see the judgment is Jesus, the judgment is the word and well the judgment is God who creates space and time itself and yet that judgment happened in space and time 
at the cross. And the judgment is now. Whenever you surrender your judgments to God's judgment and receive his life, eternal life. God, God consigns us to disobedience on, on that timeline so that we might see his mercy, his judgment. He consigns us to darkness so that we can see his light. He blinded those Jews so that they could see Christ and trust Christ, and yet it appears that most of those Jews in John chapter 12 did not come to faith in Christ in this world of space and time as, as we know it anyway here on the surface. And so according to John, they will be judged by the word on the last day. And yet that word is eternal life. Maybe that's why Jesus said this. Many sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness. Sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness. Why? Well, maybe so that eventually they will see the light. He calls them sons of the kingdom. Perhaps many will descend into death and Hades and Sheol the pit because Jesus descends into those places as well. And all those places end in Jesus. He said, Isaiah said, I saw the whole earth full of his glory. And maybe sons of the kingdom are cast into the outer darkness for the light still shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. And maybe that's why Paul even said to the guy who wouldn't, would persist in sin, Paul would say this, well, deliver him up to Satan. Why? For the destruction of the flesh. That's our judgments. Why? So that he might be saved on the day of the Lord. And so you see, just like me, just like you, maybe those people were predestined to wrath and predestined to mercy, predestined to bondage. We were born into bondage. And predestined to freedom. Predestined to judgment. And predestined to eternal life. And so at the appointed time, just like you, just like me, they're saved. By grace. Through faith. Well, if that bothers you, I mean, if that bothers me, maybe we just don't have that much faith in grace. I mean, if I look down, if I look down on the last and the least, the way that crowd looked down on Ruby Bridges, if I judge others as inferior, the way Mary judged Sarge's kind as inferior, if I never pray for folks like Osama bin Laden or relatives that don't like me or neighbors that hate me, if I'm bitter, jealous, and resentful, if I like to judge the unsaved, well, maybe I'm not very saved. They don't have very much faith in grace. Maybe I'm in darkness. And I think it's the light. You realize that was exactly the situation with those Jews? You know, all kinds of religious folks say they're saved by grace. And I think by that they mean their choice, their judgment. Or if they hung out at a lot of Presbyterian schools that they were somehow created better than other people. We know if God healed us in that state, I mean if he preserved us in that state, 
if he removed the sentence of death while our hearts were still in that state, we'd be like forever stuck in our own hell of resentment, resentment bitterness, and, and shame, incapable of love, hiding in the trees, just like Adam and Eve hid in the trees before they were cast out of the garden and God placed that flaming sword at the entrance to the tree of life. And so God says to Isaiah, Isaiah, preach to those religious folks. Isaiah, swing that flaming sword. Preach my glory that will fill the whole earth. Preach my grace until they are disillusioned of all their arrogant illusions. Preach my judgment till their arrogance, pride, and flesh is burned away and their city lies in ruin. Isaiah, preach them into darkness. Recently, a friend wrote me. This is what he said in his email. He's part of our church. He writes, when we haven't hit the wall, we maintain a sense of religious righteousness and protect our self-made identity. The Bible calls that our flesh. Thank God there's hell. Without it, I would still be a drunk. Wandering around thinking I'm somebody but afraid they'll find me out. Once you experience hell, you have no choice but to face your emptiness, your sinful nature. You come face to face with all the things a self-made man gets. Fear, anger, disappointment, confusion, and eventually self-hatred. That leads to alcohol, other ways of self-dealing. I cursed God until I was worn out asking, then begging for my heart to stop beating. In hell, he fixed the problem. I had to live there for a while. Or I would not know. I would not have known. I would not know. I had to live there a while or I would not know the real God and the meaning of his love. You know, maybe even damnation is the damnation of love. Any damnation that counts in Scripture, it's God doing the damning. Well, even damnation is the damnation of love because God is love and because His commandment, the commandment, is eternal life. And so the Lord said to Isaiah, preach him, Isaiah, preach him into darkness until all they can see is my life. And his light is life, eternal life. Preach him into darkness till all they can see is my light. And that's exactly what Jesus did when he walked this earth. He demonstrated God's grace and he preached God's grace so thoroughly and so completely that it just infuriated the Jews. It drove them into such darkness that they delivered their very own Messiah. Or I should say, we delivered our Messiah because we are the mob. They delivered their Messiah. We all delivered our Messiah to crucifixion on the ancient tree. But there on that tree, as the sky grew dark and the earth shook, the word of God issued the judgment of God. He spoke it as a prayer, crying out, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And then he lifted his head and he cried, It is finished, and he gave up his spirit. 
like a seed. Within one generation, Jerusalem was burned to the ground. And yet that holy seed remains. The light still shines in the darkness and it just keeps growing. It's the glory of God. It's the power of God. It's the judgment of God. It's the commandment of God. It's love. And it will destroy you. And then set you free. Dr. Robert Cole said, set me free. I heard him talk about it. He said, Ruby Bridges set me free. Changed my life. I looked down at her, he said. I heard him saying this. He, he looked down at her that day. and saying, Ruby, why do you pray for them? And she said, don't you think they need praying for? And then Dr. Cole said this. He said, well, Ruby, when you pray for them, what do you pray? And she said, well, Dr. Cole's every day, morning and evening, it's the same thing. I pray, please, God, try to forgive those people. Because even if they say those bad things, they don't know what they're doing. So you could forgive them. Just like you forgave those folks a long time ago when they said all those bad things about you. Imagine if you really believe that prayer for you. Imagine if you really prayed that prayer from the depths of your being for others. Well, you'd be free. You will have passed from death into life and no longer enter into judgment. I think, I think, I think you'd be free. Well, it wasn't just Ruby, you see, that was praying that prayer in 1960 in front of that angry mob. So if those folks didn't hear that prayer that day, you can rest assured they will hear it one day, the last day. They'll hear it from a throne. But check this out. It will be the same prayer, the same word, the same commandment, the same judgment, Jesus. And if at that time they hadn't learned to trust him, if they haven't learned to uh, trust him by that day, I suspect that judgment will burn like nothing ever burned. I mean, it'll just burn the hell right out of them. It'll burn them right down to that seed. Eternal seed, life. And you see, this is the gospel. This is the good news. You don't have to go to hell to see his judgment. You can see his judgment, believe his trust, judgment, and trust his judgment right here, right now. For on the night that we delivered him up, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner after supper, he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant, the eternal covenant, in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. Take and eat and take and drink. Those are commandments. And this is the commandment eternal life. And so come to the table, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup. The dark cup is wine. The light cup is juice. And as you do it, 
surrender your judgments to God's gracious judgment and never be the same. Just say it with me right now, silently in your heart. Lord God, in Jesus' name, I surrender my judgments to your judgment. For I'm beginning to see it. You're good. And so you see, there is someone far better, far more good, far more gracious, far more kind than Sarge, who serves you every day. Every cup of coffee you drink that's good, he gives you. Every cheeseburger you eat that's yummy, he gives you. Every good thought that enters your brain, he gives you. Every heartbeat in your chest is a gift from him. Every cell in your body is constantly upheld by him because he loves you. And one day, you'll see him. And when you see him, you see, it's so important that you have learned to trust his judgments that you have learned to trust his commandment so that when you see him, when he manifests before you, you won't run in terror longing to hide yourself in hell under the rocks of the mountain and the cliffs of the earth, but you'll surrender to him, that you'll run into him. You see, not trusting his judgment is called sin. We think God's big thing with sin is that like, well, he's up there and he just gets so offended by what we do to him. No, that's not it. It's that he wants us to run to him on that day rather than run away from him. He wants us to surrender to ecstasy on that day rather than to be filled in terror. And so, you see, every time we sin, every time we sin, we teach our hearts not to trust his judgment, not to trust his commandment. And so what do we do? Every week we come here and we seek to surrender to his judgment. Remember what happened to Isaiah the moment that uh, he saw God in all of his glory, Jesus in his glory sitting upon the throne? Do you remember what he did? He cursed himself. He cried, woe is me, for I'm unclean. And he fell upon the ground. It's the same thing that happened to the apostle Paul when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. It's the same thing that happened to John when he saw Jesus in the Revelation. He fell on the ground until Jesus walked up to him, picked him up and said, John, 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 it's me, your friend, Jesus. And so every weekend we come to church and we surrender to God's judgment. And a seraphim, a messenger, takes a call from the altar, something far more holy, something far more powerful than just a chunk of earthly fire, and he touches our lips. And he says, your sins are atoned for. Your guilt is taken away. 
Believe the gospel. Live the gospel. In Jesus' name. Trust the judgment of the Lord, the word of the Lord, and live.